in the New Testament called Second John. And this morning, or this weekend rather, we're starting a new sermon series that'll last for four weeks called Urgent. And we're going to start here in Second John. While you're turning there, I got to tell you, I know it's not true, but it feels like it's been a month since I've been here. It feels like it's been a month since I've been in the pulpit uh, because my schedule, my life has just been so crazy over the past few weeks. In fact, I got a little slide kind of to show you what I've been involved in for the last uh, three weeks or so. We'll bring it up here and can show you my travel. There we go. Indianapolis to Newark, to Vienna, Austria, to Thessaloniki, Greece, to Kavala, that's where Paul first stepped foot on European soil, to Philippi, to Meteora, to Athens, to the island of Mykonos, to Kusadasi, Turkey, to Ephesus, to the island of Patmos, to Crete, to Heraklion, to Santorini, to Athens, to Frankfurt, to Germany, to Newark, to Indy, to Dallas, to San Francisco, to Dallas, to Indy, with about three days at home in between all of that. It's been crazy, and it's not over yet. Uh, keep me in your prayers. It's been exhausting. I'm going to spend the first half of next week in Chicago at a Solomon Foundation meeting. It's been a real blessing, but it's just been exhausting, so keep me in your prayers. Not my fault either. I mean, how many of you know that whenever you put something on your calendar way in advance, and that's what I did with this trip to Greece. I scheduled that like two years ago. Whenever you put something on your calendar way in advance, you can count on every other thing in your life happening right around the same event. How many of you know that's true? It just happens that way. It's always been that way. It's why it used to drive me crazy. I, somebody, and I understand this, so don't, don't be offended, but somebody would say, hey, we're getting married in a year, a year and a half. Would you do our wedding? I'd say, yes. I'd put it on my calendar, and like three days before the wedding, somebody would call me up and say, hey, I got tickets to the Masters. <laughs> or some once-in-a-lifetime opportunity like that, and I'd have to say, no, sorry, I can't make it. That's pretty much why I never do weddings anymore. But anyway, it's just been nuts, and I'm glad to be back and to be with you in the pulpit. And as I said, we're starting a new series this weekend called Urgent, and, and I, I just want to set this up for you for a moment. In many ways, this is similar to what we've done for years here, uh, but at the same time, it's a little different. And what I mean by that is normally when we come together on the weekend, we open up our Bibles to a specific passage. You know, we're working our way verse by verse through a book. We've got to study. We look at a specific passage, and we read it, and we study it together. We're not doing that in this series. Instead, we're looking at entire books or entire New Testament letters, but they're the shortest ones found in the Scriptures. For example, this weekend, we begin with 2 John, and 2 John is only 13 verses long. The idea for this series is not original with me, but it came to my mind as I was reading something that set my mind in motion. You know, one of the most incredible things about the day and age we live in is how easy it is to communicate. I can sit in my office. I'm not embellishing this. I can sit on my, in my office on any day of the week and literally communicate with thousands of people in seconds through social media sites like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and there's other social media sites that I'm not even involved in. And it doesn't have to be any kind of a profound communication either. I can sit down and in seconds tell thousands of people what I had for dinner. And I can include a picture. If you follow Brian Tabor on any social media site, you know what the boy eats for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He posts that all the time. I can tell people what I think about a movie, a television show, what I think about the Colts, the Pacers, or any number of things, and it can happen just like that. In the 21st century, communication is easy. 
But it wasn't that way in ancient days, specifically in the first century when the New Testament was being written. The process of communication was really different, and even the simple act of sending a letter was pretty complicated. There was no postal service. So if you wanted to send a letter from one place to another, the first thing you had to do was find someone who was traveling to the place you were sending the letter. And then you had to hope they would carry it. Then you had to tell them how to find the recipient. And then you had to hope that they followed through and they delivered it. And because of that, because it was so complicated, in the first century, letters tended to be long, much longer than a Facebook post or a tweet. Because if you're going to go to that much trouble to get a letter delivered, then you were going to take your time in writing it. And so letters in ancient days would be several pages long. And you see that in relation to the New Testament in New Testament books like Romans or 1 Corinthians or Hebrews, letters that are a little bit longer. But even in the shorter letters in the New Testament, you find that in many cases they're detailed and they deal with a variety of different topics and subjects and issues. And so here's my point. Since the process of sending a letter in ancient days in the first century was somewhat complicated, you wouldn't usually go to all that trouble to just send something that was really brief or short unless it was urgent, unless it was really, really important. And that's really the idea behind this series. There are four letters in the New Testament that are very brief. Two are written by John, one was written by the Apostle Paul, and one was written by a man named Jude. But each one of them addresses an urgent topic, something that needed to be dealt with and resolved quickly, something that couldn't wait until the author had time to sit down and write out a detailed dissertation. They were urgent matters, and that's the basis of this new study. We're starting in 2 John, so if you've got your Bible open there, I want you to stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word. Wherever you are, I want to welcome the folks across the street, the video venue, and all you folks who are joining us online, what a joy it is to have you uh, as a part of this service. We're going to read the entire letter of 2 John, but as I told you in the beginning, it's only 13 verses, so follow along. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching, in the teaching, has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Okay, there it is. Uh, may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You can be seated. 
this morning. Let me give you a brief overview of this letter. It was written by John, who obviously needed a communications or a marketing team when it came to his ministry because he wasn't very clever or original when it came to titles of books or letters. He wrote five of the New Testament letters, and four of them are called John. He needed to get out of his uh, way and get some creative marketing people involved. The only exception is the New Testament book of Revelation that John wrote down as he received it from Jesus. John lived in the ancient city of Ephesus for the most part in his life, and he was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. But not only that, he also had a ministry and a relationship with all the other churches that were located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Those are the churches, by the way, that we just finished studying a couple of weeks ago in a sermon series called Dear Church, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. John was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. That was one of the seven, and he had a ministry and a relationship with all the other churches there in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. He lived, though, in Ephesus. I've got a picture here of Ephesus from my recent trip to Greece. That's my wife, Sandy, my daughter, Tricia on what was called the Curette Road, and you can see in the distance there the Library of Celsus. The ancient ruins of Ephesus were spectacular, folks. It made the entire trip worthwhile to Greece. Uh, this actually is in Kusadasi, Turkey, but that's on the western shore of Turkey, and we visited there as a part of our trip, which when we were on an island cruise, but only 13% of the city is uncovered in the excavation, and yet it is incredible. There is a theater in the ancient city of Ephesus that seats 24,000 people. Can you imagine? 24,000 people just built of rock out of the ground and going up, and the acoustics were incredible. I stood on the floor of the theater and sang the old hymn, How Great Thou Art, and we had people in our group that were on the top levels, and they came to me afterward, and they said, we could hear you like you were standing next to us. It was an incredible place. And that's where John lived and pastored a church. Later in John's life, under the edict of the Roman emperor Domitian, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And while he was on the island of Patmos, he received a vision from Jesus that became our New Testament book of Revelation. That Sandy and I on the island of Patmos. That is not the highest point of the mount or of the island. Rather, you walk up a steep grade to the top of the island and you find what's called the Cave of the Apocalypse. And tradition says that's where John was when he received the vision from Jesus that became the letter of Revelation or the book of Revelation. It, the views from the top of the island are absolutely stunning. Tradition tells us that once John was released from his exile, he returned to Ephesus. He lived there to an old age while all the other apostles were martyred. And one of the letters he wrote was 2 John. We studied 1 John verse by verse not long ago, and 2 John is in many ways like 1 John, just a shorter version in that both letters have exclusive portions that deal with the reality of false teachers, the threat of false teachers in the church. But, and this is what stands out to me the most from the letter of 2 John. This to me is what makes 2 John an urgent letter. What John also does in this New Testament letter is he talks about the most basic truth of the Christian life, and that is the importance, or I might say the urgency, of love the urgency of loving one another. But here's the deal. If we're going to love one another the way the Bible instructs us to, then we need to understand exactly what love is. And so what I see as I read 2 John is John the apostle giving us four truths about love that we need to understand if we're going to love the way 
God wants us to. Let's dive right in. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down next to number one on your insert. This first thing John teaches us, and he teaches us that love is fundamental. Love is fundamental. I consider the first four verses of 2 John to be introduction, and then when you get to verse 5, this is what you read. He says, and now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning, and here it is. I ask that we love one another. Now, right from the beginning, let's push the pause button. Who is the dear lady that John is addressing in 2 John? No one can say for certain. There are two common beliefs. Number one, it's just a reference, that he's, a word that he's using to reference the church. That's not uncommon in Scripture. That's not uncommon in the world to talk about the church as a she or a her. I think that finds its roots in the fact that the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. And so maybe he's just using that as a reference to of the church. But the other common belief is that he wrote this letter literally to a specific woman, to a specific lady and her children. Uh, I will see next week that when John wrote 3 John, he wrote it to a specific man. He wrote it to a man named Gaius or Gaius. For what it's worth, I'll tell you this morning that I, I lean towards believing that John wrote this letter to a specific woman and her children. If we have time later in the message, I'll tell you why. But regardless of who this is, the urgent message of 2 John is love one another. And I say that because after his introduction, it's the first thing that he says. He says, I ask that we love one another. And he says that because more than anything else, the Christian life is a life of love. We need to understand that. Now, we sometimes try to make it about other things, but the Christian life is first and foremost a life of love. We know that because Jesus made it clear. Do you remember that time in Jesus' ministry when somebody asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? You remember that? This story is recorded in more than just one gospel, but I'm going to look at it from the perspective of Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew 22, in verse 36, we read these words. One day a man said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered with these words. And by the way, what Jesus says is a direct quote from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. He answers in verses 37 through 39. The first part is a quote. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus summed it all up in verse 40 when he wrote and said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, let me put that in real simple terms for all of us this morning. Jesus is basically saying, let me give you a summary of the Christian life, and I can do it in six words. Love God, love others, love yourself. We should write that down in our notes. In fact, we should remind ourselves to go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 and write that in the margin of our Bible. The Christian life can be summarized in six words. Love God, love others, and love yourself. More than anything else, the Christian life is a life of love. And there's even more proof of that in the New Testament. The same John who wrote this letter that we're looking at today is the John who stood in the room with Jesus just hours before his arrest and his subsequent crucifixion and heard him say these words that are recorded in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John heard Jesus say those words right before his arrest and his crucifixion. Someone might say, well, pastor, Jesus is contradicting the Scripture because this is not really a new command. You just told us that. You just told us that this goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Well, we need to understand Jesus isn't contradicting himself with the words, a new command I give you, love one another, when you consider the next phrase because he goes on to say, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
It wasn't a new command, but it was a new standard or a new measure for the command. Jesus says, as I have loved you, he says, you need to love one another. That's the command, but you need to do it in a sacrificial way, a self-sacrificing way. And Jesus was so strategic in saying those words to his disciples when he did, again, just before his arrest and his crucifixion. I say that because Jesus knew what was lying ahead for his disciples. He knew what was ahead for those who were his followers. He knew that after he left and they took the message, his message to the world, he knew that it would be their lives, it would be the way they lived, it would be the way they loved that would make the greatest impact on the world. And that's why he said, love one another with the same kind of sacrificial love that I have loved you. I listened to Chad's message from last week and he talked about this and the kind of impact that the sacrificial love of first century Christians had on the world. And he talked about the kind of impact that that same sacrificial love can have on the world today. That's why the Christian life, we need to understand, is a life of love. That's why there's urgency about the message to love one another. Last week, Sandy and I were in San Francisco at the Solomon Foundation annual meeting. And one of the things that happens at the annual meeting is we get to hear from some of the pastors of the churches that the Solomon Foundation has funded. The Solomon Foundation is a church extension fund. I think most of you know that. We loan money to churches to help them buy property, build buildings, expand buildings, get to the next level, whatever that is for them. And then once a year, we get to hear the stories, the real life stories of what the result of that is. And one of the pastors, he's a pastor in Broomfield, Colorado, Discovery Christian Church, was talking about his church and the great growth that they've experienced, but the challenge that they face in evangelizing their community because their community is filled with people who are either atheists or who have absolutely no interest in God, no connection to the church, no, no real thought one way or the other about Jesus or the gospel or anything like that. He was talking about how, I don't know if many of you remember this or not, he was talking about how back in the 1980s, and I can remember this, and the 1990s, when Willow, Church, when Willow Creek Community Church burst on the scene in Chicago, they started a, a whole new kind of evangelistic movement uh, that was basically called the seeker movement. And they, 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 they made their approach to church being, being completely attractional. Their evangelism process was, was programmed. It was all attractional. I mean, you could go to a church service and not even really participate. It was like kind of sitting and watching a, a show unfold before you. And yet there was an attractional part of it that drew people to Christ. And it worked back in the 80s. And it worked back in the 90s because the people of that era and that generation had some level of common ground when it came to Christ, when it came to believing in God, when it came to the church. But listen, that is not the way it is today. I don't know if you know that or not. But that's not the way it is today. We live in a post-Christian culture today. And we make a mistake if we just assume that everyone has the same heritage, spiritual background, or belief system that we do because they don't. You know, our church makes a, a lot of effort to be involved in impacting our community and impacting the world ultimately one of the greatest things that we do, and I don't think many people know that much about it unless you're involved, but one of the greatest things we do for that impact is we play a significant role and provide leadership and funding for something called Bible Club. Christian Youth Bible Club is the complete name, and I know many of you know what that is because your children are involved in it, and you volunteer and you lead in that ministry. And so what that means is we've got people in our church who are involved every week that school's in session with reaching 2,000 students in 26 different schools around the south side of, Indian, of Indianapolis. That's Center Grove, that's Perry, that's Greenwood, that's Franklin, that's Franklin Township, and on and on and on. 
But right here in Greenwood, Indiana, in central Indiana, right in what we think of as the heart of the Bible Belt, we've got Bible Club volunteers who tell me about meeting children who have no idea who Jesus is. I heard a story just the other day or just, just recently from one of our Bible Club volunteers about uh, being in their meeting and, 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 and talking about Jesus and asking the question, you know, that typical Sunday school question, who, who was that or who said that? And, 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 and much of the group said, Jesus. And then a little one turned to, uh, I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl, but turned to their shepherd in Bible Club and said, who's Jesus? This is the reality of the culture that we live in today. So you can't program evangelism. You can't program Jesus to people who don't know who he is or don't understand the significance of his life. You've got to provide more than that. So what do we do? What do we do to make a difference in the world today? What do we do to reach people in the world today, people who need to be redeemed or people who need to be restored? Well, you know what we need to be? We need to be peculiar people. And I use that word deliberately because that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He says about believers that we are a peculiar people. And I'm guaranteeing you, anyone who decides every day that they're going to love somebody with a sacrificial love, think about the meaning of the word sacrificial. Anybody who decides, who gets up and decides, today I'm going to put the needs of other people above my own. It doesn't matter if I know them or not. It doesn't matter if I like them or not or, or I have anything in common with them. Today I'm going to put the needs of somebody else above my own. Anybody who does that is going to be viewed as peculiar in the world that we live in today. And that's what makes the difference. That's why love is fundamental for us as Christians. That's why the urgent message of 2 John is for us to love one another. I wish I could talk more about that, but I don't have time. Right down next to number two, the second thing John teaches us about love, he teaches us that love is obedience. And I see that in verse six because it goes on and says, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now listen, folks, this is a very important part of this instruction about love because it takes love to a new place. From a very practical standpoint, it takes love to a whole new place because it teaches us or it reminds us that love for the Christian is not just sentiment. It's not just emotion. It's not just the way we feel. Those are the things we associate with love. But love, the Bible teaches us, is a choice. It's a choice we make. And in this case, it's a, cho it's a choice to be obedient to God and the commands of God. In other words, and you should write this down, love isn't about how we feel, it's about what we choose. Love isn't about how we feel, it's about what we choose. That's not to say that the emotional side of love is not important because it is, we all understand that, but it can't be all that there is. And the best example of this in my mind is Jesus. Jesus, the Bible tells us, came into the world for the express purpose of dying on the cross, giving his life as a sacrifice on the cross to take your place and my place to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, listen to how Paul describes that act when he talks about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. He says about Jesus, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Everyone say obedient. Obedient to death, even death on a cross. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus do this simply out of the emotion of love? Did Jesus... As he went through his life in this world, was he constantly overwhelmed by the emotion of love for his followers, by the emotion of love for the people that he met in his life? 
I, I can stand up here this morning and say without hesitation, without doubt, I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he does. I have that conviction and that assurance in my heart. There's never a moment when I believe otherwise. And yet, at the same time, I can tell you that I'm not sure Jesus is always love struck with me. Can you relate to what I'm talking about? So why does he do it? Why did he give his life for us? Why does Jesus choose to love sinful people like you and me every day? It's because love is obedience. Love is a choice that we make. He chooses to love us when we fail Him. He chooses to love us when we question Him. He chooses to love us when we doubt Him. He chooses to love us even when we turn our back on Him. And this is the example we need to follow. Love is a choice. And the Bible teaches us, for us, it's a choice to obey God's commands. In fact, look at these words on the screen. Jesus spoke these words, John 14, 15. Read them with me. Let me hear your voices. If you love me, you will obey what I command. I don't think that needs any explanation to you. If you love me, you will obey my command. You can't make that more clear. Love is a choice. Is it difficult sometimes? Absolutely. It's very difficult at times. But it's a choice. It's a choice that we make. Reminds me of the story of the husband and wife who were fighting and fussing and they couldn't get along and they just were, in, they were miserable together and they couldn't find any peace or harmony in their life. And so one day, out of desperation, the wife suggested that they each take a piece of paper and they write down on the paper everything that they disliked about the other one, everything about the other one that annoyed them so they could show it to each other and they'd get a feel or a sense about the reality of how the other one felt. And so they took a piece of paper and a pen and they began to write furiously, both of them furiously. Every now and then they would look up at the other one and get this really mean snarled look on their face and they'd put their head down and start to write more. And finally the woman finished. She finished her page and she set it aside, but to her annoyance, her husband, he kept writing furiously and he would look up at her and he would just, you know, he just like, he just wanted to kill her and he would just look back down and he would keep writing and she was really annoyed now because she had finished the one side of the page and he was finishing the second side, the back side of the page and her she didn't know what to do. She was so angry. Her eyes were filled with tears of anger. And then finally, he put his pen down. He was finished. And they, they gave each other their pages, their papers. And as soon as she looked at his, her husband's page, her, her heart just sunk. And she felt so horrible. And she wished she could take hers back because as she looked at his page. What he had written on every single line was, I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm ticked off at you, but I love you. I love you. I'm angry at you, but I love you. I love you. I wish I didn't have to be here right now, but I love you. I love you. I love you. Front and back, that's what it said over and over again. It's not always easy, but love is a choice that we make. And for us as believers, it's a choice to obey the commands of God. And that means you and I can stand and we can talk about how much we love God. We can talk about how much we love Jesus until we're blue in the face, but that, all of our claims will always be measured against the truth of God's word and whether or not we're living in obedience to him and what he commands. Love is obedience. The third thing that John tells us about love, right down next to number three, is that love is truth. And this is a critical aspect of love. Critical. We see this in verses 7 through 11. And this is where 2 John mirrors 1 John on a smaller level because this is where John writes about the danger and the deception of false teachers. Verses 7 through 11, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Notice the harsh language. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may, may be rewarded fully. 
Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. And so he talks honestly, quite frankly, about false teachers. But I want you to listen to me. There's more to it than just that. These verses, even if you don't see it right away, these verses also teach us about love. Let me tell you why I say that. If you're so inclined, I want you to take your Bible and hold it real close and look down at it. Verses 6 and 7 in particular. Now, I'm reading from my NIV Bible like I always do, my 1984 version of the NIV Bible. And in my English Bible, I don't see this, but what I want you to know and I want you to make a note of is that in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, in the original text, the Greek text, the first word for verse 7 is because. And that's significant. It's significant because that means verses 6 and 7 should read like this. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. And he goes on in verses 8 through 11 to talk about that deception. Now, that's so important because what John is telling us is that love is truth, that love and truth are inseparably linked together. In fact, you should write that down. And so we need to remember that when we come across people who are trying to deceive us, when we come across people who are living in deception, when we come across a false teacher or somebody who who is, is living their life under the belief that they're doing what God approves of when they're not, we need to remember that love and truth are inseparably linked because love is truth. That's what John is teaching us here. Truth, by the way, is a critical issue in 2 John. I just go back to the very first uh, words of the, the letter and the, in, what I think of as the introduction in verses 1 through 4. If I read those words, you count how many times John uses the word truth. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. How many times? Five times. Now, I've told you before, when we read and study our Bibles, whether it's a verse of Scripture or a passive Scripture or an entire book of Scripture, we need to pay attention to things. And one of the things we pay attention to is repetition because that tells us what the topic is, what's important in the passage. And truth was obviously very important to John. And so he tells us that love is truth. Love is truth. That's what we need to remember What does that mean to us on a practical level, on a practical basis? Well, it means that love always honors the truth. And here's the deal. Love always tells the truth. And love never, everyone say never, never, never gives the time of day to deception. Love never allows someone to be deceived by something that's not true without speaking up and offering a word of warning. Love is truth, and truth is critical to life, especially spiritual life. So here's the question for all of us. What do we do? 
What do we do when someone we love is being led or deceived by something that's not true? What do we do? What do we do when someone we love is involved in something or practicing something in their life that is not in accordance with the truth of God's Word and God's will? What do we do? Well, there's only one right answer. It's not easy to do. Sometimes it's incredibly difficult. But in love, we tell them the truth. In love, we speak the words of truth to those people. We say things like, this is not the message of the gospel. This is not the message of the Christian life. This is not what you're doing is not God's best for you or your life or anybody's life. What you are doing is not the will of God for you or anyone. And we stand prepared to offer up the biblical truth behind why we say that. Again, it's sometimes difficult. Sometimes it costs us friendships. Sometimes it costs us relationships. But this is what love does. Because love is truth, this is what love does. Love always tells the truth. It's not easy to do. I remember being in a restaurant with a friend of mine from years ago who had left his wife and was involved in a relationship with another woman. And he wanted to go back to his wife, but he, he wouldn't leave the other woman. And he basically would say to his wife, I want to come back to you, but I want you to tell me that you'll take me back before I move out with this other woman. And she would say, well, I'm not going to even talk to you about the possibility of reconciliation until you move out. And I looked at him and I said, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing, and you know this, is not in obedience to the will of God when it comes to marriage and when it comes to morality. What you're doing is wrong. God doesn't approve of this. And he looked at me right in the face and he said, God and I got an understanding about this. I said, no, you don't. You don't. You never have an understanding with God when it comes to sinful behavior. Never. And I want you to listen to me wherever you are. Your circumstances never change that because you think your circumstances are unique or different. They, they're not. That never changes. Never. Love is truth. Love honors the truth. And love tells the truth. And that's what John is teaching us here. And by the way, one of the reasons why I believe that John wrote this letter to a specific woman is because of verses 10 and 11. You know, we know the story of, Jesus, of Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem and finding no room in the inn. But the truth is, in ancient days, people didn't, always, people didn't often stay in inns because inns sometimes were connected to disreputable behavior. Hospitality was huge in, in the first century, and people would welcome you into their home. Hospitality was important. And I believe John is writing to a woman who unknowingly offered hospitality, hospitality to someone who was a false teacher. And by offering him hospitality, she gave him some sense of credibility and some in in the church, in the fellowship, in the community of believers she was involved in. And John is writing to say no, no, no. Verse 10 says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the true teaching about Jesus, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Listen, here's the deal. I don't believe John is telling us here that we should not have relationships with people who are unbelievers, but I do believe, listen to me, I do believe there are times, I do believe there are times in our lives when we come across people who live in deception and people who spread deception and they lie, they tell lies that come straight from the pit of hell and they have nothing in their heart but to do damage to the kingdom of God and we are to have nothing to do with those people. I believe that. 
please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to be too harsh. But I'm just talking about the importance of truth, the value of truth. I'm out of time, so write down this one last thing. Brian can come and we'll close. John tells us that love is personal. Verse 12 says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. I think that's crucial. John says, I got to write this. This is an urgent issue. I've got to write you this note. I've got to address this now. But what I really, really want to do is I want to be in in, in front of you. I want to have a personal contact with you. I want to talk to you face-to-face, in fact. Face-to-face is how my English Bible renders the original text, but I, and I know why, because that makes sense to us. We understand that term, but literally, he's talking about mouth-to-mouth. It even seems a little bit more personal and intimate that way. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to, to write something pretty harsh to someone in a letter or an email or, or some written correspondence and you actually, you actually write to them much more harshly with much more anger and, 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 and tone than you would ever dream of saying to their face? Have you ever noticed how easy that is? I know some of you know how easy that is because you've sent those things to me. Somehow we think we're safe behind a computer screen or in our office or in our home. We don't have to deal with the issues up close and personal, face to face. And John is saying, that's not what I want to do. I know this is messy. I know this is difficult. I know that that, that this will be awkward and and that there could be relationships damaged as a result. But I'm writing this to you. But what I really want to do is talk to you about this in person, face to face. Why? Because love is personal. Love is personal. There's no greater example of that than God. Because He's the sovereign God of the universe, He could have dealt with our sin and our lostness and the messiness of our lives in any number of ways that didn't involve Him getting involved up close and personal, but instead He chose to clothe Himself with flesh and come into the world and be involved in His hands dirty and be involved in the messiness of our lives and the awkwardness of our lives in the most personal way because love is personal. We don't leave it to a few written words. It's personal. Because God did that, we have this access to Him now. Because He did that in Jesus, we have this access to Him now. We can speak to Him like never before through our prayers. He lives inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And all because love is personal. And so the urgent message of 2 John is love. Love one another. John's like, I'm writing this. I don't, I, w- I don't want it just to be in writing. I want to see a face-to-face, but this is so important. i got to tell you this, love one another. But then he told us that love is fundamental, and love is obedience, and love is truth, and love is personal. I only have time to ask you one question, and we'll close. How are you doing with this love? How are you doing in your life with this commandment and this instruction with the urgency of love. How are we doing as a church? Let me tell you something. The greatest power to redeem someone who is lost or restore someone who is lost, the greatest power is the power of love. 